Thank you everybody for joining us for another episode on the now of work. I am absolutely giddy about today's guest. Cheryl Cran is an author, about to be a 10 time author. We're gonna get to that, Cheryl. A keynote speaker and founder of Next Mapping. Next Mapping uses key strategies to help people navigate the future of work. And I'm gonna tell, I'm going to let Cheryl tell us exactly how that works. Uh, this is going to be such a fantastic conversation. Uh, and I have to say, Cheryl, by the time people listen to this episode, we will have kicked off 2022. Uh, and I, I've been thinking a lot lately about sort of the baggage that we can leave behind in 2021 and what we need to and can carry forward to fuel positive transformation, change, innovation in 2022. I'm super excited about what's to come and, and I bet you are too, but I'll let you say hello and do a better introduction than I can <laughs> of what you're all about and how you came to found Next Mapping. Yeah, it's great. And it's so wonderful to be here with you too, Jess. We had a great pre-conversation, so I just know that our, our continued conversation is going to be fantastic. Uh, Next Mapping is a proprietary um, name that encompasses all the work I've been doing for the past two decades on leadership, change leadership, uh, the future of work. We often say at Next Mapping, it's the future is now. So even though we talk about future of work, uh, it's really about what do we need to do today in order to be future ready and how do we create a future that not to sound idealistic, but really my personal mission is to change the world through business, helping leaders and teams change their minds, shift their mindsets towards greater inclusivity, towards uh, a people first focus so that where we have a future that we are uh, automating the mundane so that we can elevate the humane and mm -hmm. so that's kind of what next mapping is and how we do that is a number of ways we, we obviously have consulting coaching keynoting but next mapping is a proprietary process that walks people through um, ideating visualizing looking at patterns seeing those patterns you know similar to design thinking where you're looking for patterns to design the future that's going to best serve us all as individuals and people in our lives, but also in our work. So next mapping through consulting, we walk people through a process and coaching, we walk people through a process. The end result is greater excitement, greater optimism, greater um, realization that we actually have more control to create our future than we probably thought of before. Oh, I love the word excitement. And I also love that you said future ready. It drives me a little nuts uh, when I hear future proof. And I say it myself yes. sometimes when it makes sense, yeah. but the term doesn't always make sense. I'm not trying to, future proof implies that I'm trying to make something uh, able to withstand, right? Like I'm not future proofing the business or my workforce. I don't want it to withstand and sort of, you know, uh, push off, um, you know, like a, a barrier I put around it. I actually want to make, I love future ready or future fit or future something else. Like you should, we should be thinking about ways we can build sustainable business and transformational um, workforces who are able to morph and evolve and transform. And there's a whole approach and a mindset that needs to go into building that sort of change muscle into processes technology, people sort of accepting and getting excited about the fact that nothing is static. 
everything is dynamic. Everything is built and designed for change and transformation and improvement, continuous improvement. Uh, is that some of the thinking that goes into preparing people for what's next? Yeah, I think, you know, in my opinion, future proof is a reaction, future ready is an action or a proaction, right? So future proof to me is very similar to change management, which I've always viewed those as pushback uh, terms and dare I say even um, more masculine terms around the business. You know, it's like, oh, we got to future proof the business. It's like, well, actually, no, to your point, we need to future ready the business because the process never ends. So if we're future ready, then we are focused on continuous improvement. We are a learning organization, which means all our failures go into the stack of learning and innovation. We are not proofing ourselves. Future proofing is a wall. It puts up a wall that's, oh, we're protected against anything that's going to happen in the future. No, future ready means we're actually uh, proactively prepared for any actuality because we've shifted our mindsets because we've shifted our processes, because we've shifted our viewpoint on, uh, we, we've never arrived. And that's sort of an old school view of success as well, right? as you have these pinnacles. I love that Will Smith said in a recent interview that he's no longer seeking to be famous, that that's, that was an end goal. That was, that's, it's more about the journey of continually learning, growing and seeking new experiences. That's what we're talking about at Next Mapping. It's, it's not an end goal. In fact, once we've made a major achievement, that's an opportunity to debrief and review what worked, what didn't work, and where do we want to go next. So that's sort of what Next Mapping is all about, is what's next, what's next, what's next, celebrating the now, but, but not resting on a destination. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a, a concept, I guess, an analogy that I play with once in a while, because it's near and dear to me, but I also think it works. I think that athletes and performance understand transformation, because if yes. you're an athlete or if you're a performance team, then you understand you're always preparing, you're always training, you're always sort of readying yourself for the next event. And, the, and that event, win or lose, however well you performed or didn't in the, the race or the event or the game, uh, is an opportunity to take stock and figure out how to become even higher performing. Than, you're always ready for performance. You're always ready for the event. And you don't know how the event is going to play out. You perform the way you perform. But almost all of that was, you know, the 90% the of readiness happened way before the event. And, and when you think about organizations that are trying to build high-performing teams, high-performing workforces, that training mentality, like that's just an analogy I, I, I like, but it's the same as having a growth mindset. It's the same as having transformation muscle or sort of an appetite for change in the organization. You understand that you're always training to be high-performing in any environment or condition. And when the event, you know, whatever it is, uh, where you're sort of called to perform, it happens, but that's, again, take stock and how do you then improve for ongoing performance? Um, I love something you said earlier uh, in our, in our pre-call. When we talk about the future of work or the future period, uh, you were very clear about the fact that the future is human. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. So what I was saying is that pre-pandemic, you know, we at Next Mapping, obviously we work with a lot of organizations helping them to uh, integrate digital maturity or dig technology innovation 
by approaching it from a mindset approach. In other words, what are the changes that need to happen on the people side so that the technology enables them to have more human experiences? In other words, if we automate the mundane, as I said earlier, it allows us to elevate that human element, that humane. I mean, you and I, if, if I view, as you said, if I view technology as my assistant, and it's another coworker, which is the context which I believe it is. It's another coworker. It's a coworker that provides us with data. It's a coworker that helps us simplify systems. It's a coworker that that helps us speed up the mundane. Then we have nowhere to go but to be more and better humans. And the human future that I envision is one that you know, pre-pandemic, I think we were saying people first, but I think it was a concept. I think pandemic now and post-pandemic, what we're seeing is that we're all human, that we all have lives beyond our work identity, that our identities are much more, uh, you know, we're not limited by roles. Uh, dare I say that we are souls in a human body, you know, to just to take it to that extent. And so as a human, realizing that our opportunity is to create a better society, is to create uh, societies that are uh, through work, through workplaces, that is a society that is truly um, equalizing the inequities, that is truly, you know, and I get the shivers because it does sound idealistic, but really, if you are able to have the vision of well, what is the potential of society, what is the potential of humanity, we can see that all signs are pointing towards we need to be better humans. And I'm really impassioned by this right now. I'm working on it. That's the, what the 10th book about is about, is about being a better human. And really pre-pandemic, we were talking about, oh, it's the roboticized future. We won't need people. But actually what's happened is we need more people. We're in a worker shortage and there's a predicted worker shortage until the year 2030. So if we need more people and people are resigning at a higher rate than ever before, then the, the, the push for leaders to be the best leaders that they can be, and I'm talking empathy, compassion, emotional intelligence, uh, the ability to inspire and engage versus inform and expect. These are the opportunities for us as human beings and as workers, uh, not showing up to just do a job, but seeing the human impact on what we do. So what's the human impact on the customer? What's the human impact on our coworker? What's mm -hmm. the, and I think what excites me about now and the future is that truly em embrace this then we are actually looking at the future through the lens of what's really important. So the pandemic showed us that life is important. People, you know, the number of people that have died has been, you know, mind boggling. Um, we've also realized that family is important. Our health is important. So I see this human future around organizations much more focused on well-being of their, of their human workers much more focused on diversity and inclusion, not as a concept, but as a necessity. And so um, I really believe that we have to have better human skills, not soft skills. I hate the term soft skills because soft skills implies that it's not important. Mm -hmm. I'm talking crucial human skills. So the more empathetic we can be, the more understanding we can be, the more inclusive we can be, we're creating a future that I get truly excited about. And yes, we're in a period of change and we're in a period of polarity, but it's a necessary stage we're in to get to that future that we can all feel. I was just going to ask about that. Um, I am eternally optimistic and audaciously hopeful like you are. Uh, and I believe all of these things too. I believe, I believe that 
I actually believe that work might actually exist to help people. And if you think that work, the function of work exists to help people, that doesn't just mean the services and the products that you provide to the world. And, and it also means you have responsibility for the people in your employ. That means a whole lot, actually, when you come when you come from that definition. But I think that kind of mindset and approach really could change the world. It could change people's lives. Um, I'm reminded of, I, so I practice yoga, Cheryl. And, <laughs> and as do I, as do I. <laughs> I did, that doesn't surprise me because there is something yeah. about the practice of yoga that sort of gives you a certain mindset and lens of the world. And last night, on my mat, uh, the yoga instructor sort of guided us through this meditation. And I don't remember the yoga term for it, but she was referring to an in, the inward gaze. Um, the practice of yoga is a lot like that, but self-reflection and meditation is a lot like that. And I think, honestly, I was having to, during my yoga practice about the inward gaze, and I think that's what happened. I think that's what the pandemic did yes. to people. Uh, this particular practice was called slow burn. You do it in the dark and you, with your eyes closed. So double dark, you're literally blinded uh -huh. and you're sort of feeling the edges of the mat with your fingertips as you take your poses and hold your position. Uh, talk about your, your balance is off, your, your, your senses are heightened. You can hear people breathe in the studio differently than you can, like you're in tune in a way that that you otherwise would not be because there's no distraction. There's just that inward gaze. And I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but I was thinking how, what a great analogy that is for what people had to do to survive a pandemic and all of the crises that came along with that, uh, how we handled fear, fear of isolation, fear for our health, um, true isolation, how we found ways to connect with each other and form community in different ways. Um, obviously, there was financial and economic impact to individuals and to businesses. Um, <clears throat> and then we had a social justice crisis in the middle of it all. And we talked about each other and belonging and race in different ways than we ever did before. I think we've actually just spent two years in an inward gaze. And I think, I'm pretty sure, when we move forward, as we continue to move forward, when we open our eyes, when the lights come on, we don't want it to look the same. We don't want it to look the same. We've been gazing too hard and too long for us to open our eyes and see the same stuff that we saw before. We actually expect change. And I think that that's the call I think that is the calling of employers moving forward. If you expect to employ the world's best talent, which everybody says they want, you better be prepared to show up uh, because I think people are gonna show up a lot differently for you than they did before. And that can be incredibly exciting for employers who know how to tap into all of that. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. How, how in, in, the, in the similar vein to what you're saying, inward gaze, um, and I think the word is ahimsa, but I'm not positive, don't quote me on that. But uh, really what I, what I acknowledge, because a lot of my work has been about you know, researching social trends, uh, generational trends, all of those things, is what it led to was everybody asking themselves deep existential questions. Why am I here? What am I doing? 
Why am I commuting for four hours a day to go to a job that I absolutely detest? Uh, why am I giving up time with my children to do work that I'm giving more value and meaning to than the actual value of my family? So we're not talking just surface questions, deep existential questions. And depending on where you are in your spiritual journey, and when I say spiritual, I'm not talking, I'm not talking religion, I'm talking your deep inner values about how you view life, right? Yeah. So, so wherever we were on that scale would, would have contributed to how we viewed fear, how we dealt with fear, our relationship with fear. So, um, you know, just a quick personal story is that our family decided to make major change in the middle of a pandemic, not just because of the pandemic, but in my life, a lot of things converged. My husband had multiple health issues going on just before the pandemic, then the pandemic struck and we had to do hospital trips with him in a, in a COVID reality. My daughter was pregnant with our second grandchild. She had a difficult pregnancy. He had open heart surgery at nine days old. Mm. Uh, we had a lot of things converge where, and, and thank goodness for my yoga practice and for my deep beliefs about life and why things happen, that I was able to see it as a sign. There's a sign that something needed to change. And I, rather than resist that sign, okay, what do we collectively need to do as a family to meet the needs of what we're, what's being shown to us right now? And it became very evident that it was time to move, that it was time to get into an environment that was peaceful, that was grounded, that was um, family oriented, that was going to take away the stress and the pressures of the pre-pandemic reality. Mm. So I'm just one example of that, but I have many clients who've shared their existential questioning and what choices they made as a result. So all of that, if we look at that as a pattern, if every human being on the planet, 7 billion of us is asking themselves what's important, you better darn bet that we're all going, what we thought was important is no longer important, which means we can't go back to what was because we will be going against our inner values about what's now important. So organizations and leaders who do not understand this, who are ignoring the existential questioning, who are ignoring that people are saying, I'm no longer inspired to commute to come to work in an office. And if you don't allow me to work either, you know, a hybrid or remotely, then I'm not a fit for you anymore. Not because I don't like you or not because I'm not loyal to you, but because my life is asking me to live in a different way. Yes. So as a leader, the more aware you are, the more you're in tune with your own existential questioning, the more vulnerable you are to the reality that everybody's going through this, you're going to have people trust you. You're going to have people want to work with you because they sense that desire to create something bigger and better and I'm talking purpose-related, meaning, meaningful, when I mean bigger, um, more meaning, more purpose, then those organizations are going to win. What I'm seeing is the organizations who are holding fast to the mentality of they better be grateful that they have a job or, you know, in person is better. All of those ideologies, while I understand them and I empathize with them, they're not accepting of the patterns of change that all of us as human beings are going through. So yeah. it's those existential questions that if we're not paying attention to them, they're going to get blindsided as leaders and organizations, for sure. So not only have humans been through that, you know, inner gaze, this existential crisis, crises, uh, but now labor market conditions, so double yes. whammy, this has yes. happened, and yes, yes. double whammy, the labor yeah. market has given us permission to say it out That's loud right. and to execute choices accordingly. I think the unfortunate part, you know, maybe humanity has always sort of had this inkling or felt this way or felt like they deserved more, better. Why does work feel this way? But unless you have permission 
to act on it, to vote with your feet, to make employment decisions accordingly. It's just sort of a, a wish and a dream and employers don't break bad habits because they don't have to. And it's just easier to stay the same. But now we have this like perfect storm of conditions where all of these things are true and they get to act. People, That's right. The shift That's right. of power has happened and people get to act. Uh, it's, it's not a privilege uh, anymore. I, I think the privilege has turned into a right. And, and we're saying things That's need That's exactly to right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So, you know, just by nature of the great resignation, I have had many traditional leaders say, well, why, how are people paying their bills? Like, why are they quitting? And I have to say to them, well, hang on a second here. Some people did really well in the stock market during the pandemic. Some people, um, you know, their spouses decided that their work didn't equate to the money, you know, having the quality of life of being home with the family versus working. So I, I said, you're, you're not, you're not looking, you're looking at it practically versus emotionally. If you look at it emotionally, of course, people are quitting because they're going, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to stand for being treated for less than what I am. And so what we have is a great rising of people standing up for themselves, which is part of the effect of an inward gaze is what do I value? What's important to me? Am I going to advocate for myself, which is all healthy? If you're a leader that's based on fear, you're going to go, oh, this is terrible. They can't do that. Like they should just be happy. It's like, no, actually what this is pointing to, how do I as an organization pay more money for the value of the people that I have? How do I set up an organization where they have work-life balance and well-being is prioritized? Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, you know, this is my jam, right? So when I talk to organizations and they resist that or they push back against it, my job is to empathize with that viewpoint because you cannot influence change by pushing what's happening. You okay. can't influence people to say, well, you've got to go here. You can simply show the data. You can show, and by the way, people are showing it by leaving their jobs. And so companies are dealing with mass exodus of people. They're dealing with not being able to find new people. They're dealing with workers saying, you know, unless I can work partially from home, I can't work here anymore. So you're right. It's a worker's market. Workers have a voice. They're using their voice. Mm -hmm. And I think, ex, ex, you know, sort of off of that, a tangent off of that is what you alluded to earlier when you said, you know, racial injustice and all these things that are, you know, revealing themselves. It is every person of every race, culture, gender, who's saying, I deserve better. And yeah. I'm going to speak up for what that is. And I see that as truly exciting because mm -hmm. it's not taking away from any of us. It's, yes. it's encouraging all of us to be better humans. So what does it look like to extend opportunities to races who've never had the privilege or the opportunity to have opportunities provided to them? Is that an opportunity to solve some of the problems we have as it relates to recruiting and retention? Yeah. Right. Yes, so I, I just see it as a, a huge human opportunity. There's a we're about to enter a renaissance. And I not I don't yeah. say that as an optimist. I say that as all data, mm -hmm. all patterns are pointing to a renaissance. I so agree. I attended a, a professional retreat several weeks ago, and the topic, the theme of the several days we spent together was the pros and cons of bringing your whole self to work. Yeah, this is a new thing. You know, it's yes, like it is. It work. is. Yes. Uh, let's yes. bring our whole self to work and show how inclusive we are and how transformational and innovative our culture can be. Um, and we say it too at LeapGen. We talk about a whole person approach to workforce experience and to designing tools and systems for people. Um, and so we're guilty of it too. But but when I'm able to sort of go off script 
and really talk about what this means. Just put a philosophy hat on for a minute. I, mm -hmm. My feedback on that topic sort of surprised myself, I guess, but I, I, when you really think about it, I don't, when people say this, I don't think it means, I think it means more than you think it means. If you're truly talking about fully authentic, flawed, imperfect, hopeful, scared, challenged people, yes. like I want yes. all of you to yes. show up at the workplace, that means yes. a whole lot more than you think it means. And if you mean it, that puts a great deal of responsibility on HR, business leaders, leadership in general, not managers, leaders. And so if we mean that, and if we're going to welcome everything that that means, we do need to fuel managers and leaders. There's a difference, but we need to fuel managers in a different way to support that experience. We need to inspire leadership to create an environment where that actually can be sustained. It would be incredibly irresponsible to invite that and not be able to support and welcome it and make that real. So that's where the crucial human skills piece comes in is that um, uh, as leaders and as managers, or let's just generalize and say as all workers, we have a responsibility to, um, in, in order to be able to deal with everybody's whole self, I have said this for decades, by the way, that we as, as leaders need to be psychologists. We need to truly love people. And when I say love people, I'm saying everything that comes with that, the goods, the bads, the, the, the struggles that people are dealing with, the realities that they're dealing with, their personality, their lens, their viewpoint, how they disagree. That means we just love people because we appreciate the diversity of all of us as individuals and human beings. Now that's a tall order. And trust me, for two, for two decades, I've been, and I get people going, well, I love people. I don't even like people. And when I hear that, I go, well, then maybe you should rethink being a leader because honestly, when you love, like for my work, Jess, I, I've been doing this. The reason I've done it for so long is because I really am on mission. I believe that I can change world, you know, through leaders, through teams, through people by influencing change and this few better future. So that's my mission. Um, but with that mission comes responsibility. And so for me, when I'm interacting with people, I've got to walk my talk. I can't just write about and talk about this stuff if I'm not embodying it. So then just to your point about the whole self, the fears, being vulnerable, being willing to say right now, I'm scared if I can use a, a bad word. Right now I'm scared shitless, right? I, yeah. And I don't know what to do, but if I admit that to my team and my people and say, I'm scared, but I'm also hopeful, mm -hmm. that's inspirational because people go, wow, good. Okay, so she's not just pie in the sky optimist. She's saying that she too is fearful or she's afraid. Yeah. So now we're, we're equalized, we're normalized. If I'm coaching you and you bring your whole self to me, but I can't be present with you when you're going through a hard time and I am not being a leader, I'm simply seeing you as a means to an end. I'm seeing you as an employee going, you need to be together, girl, because you got work to do. That's the old school, traditional leadership thinking. Today, it's like, okay, Jess needs my support and my guides. I'm going to be, I'm going to pause and be present for that because that's part of the entire scope and spectrum of what it means to be a leader. But you cannot overnight become that leader. You've got to be willing to develop the crucial human skills necessary to be able to hold that container. So that's where the empathy comes in. And empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is, oh, you poor thing. I, I know you're struggling. It's actually, it's patronizing. It's, 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 it's yucky. Empathy is damn, I, I, I can't even imagine 
what it must be like for you right now and really mean it. Yes. And, and then understand. And, and then go, what do you need? How can I help? Imagine if leaders were having those dialogues. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Cheryl, you told me the title of your your 10th book, your next book. And I absolutely love it. Will you share again the title of your Thank next you. book? Yeah, it's, it's called Super Crucial Human, The wow. Next Needs You. And it's just about we humans aren't going anywhere. We need to be better humans. We need to be humans that are willing to have that continuous improvement. We need to be seeing it as a collective. Uh, I believe the opportunity is to become I, I use a model in the book, it's called me to we and that is to focus more on the learn level of the me to we model versus the personal and blame level. Right now, we're in the middle of a polarity where there's a lot of blaming going on. And blaming is a necessary part of evolutionary movement, but we can't hang out there anymore. Now we've got to elevate ourselves to learn. And in that seeking to understand, that's where innovative and creative solutions emerge. And so my hope with the book is that people are inspired to see their personal role in how they can create the future and, and, and create a better future. But then also, rather than see other people as the problem, seek to collaborate to, in order to um, increase that, that better future that we all want to have or improve that better future. So. I absolutely love it. Cheryl, thank you for your mission, for your voice, uh, and for your humanity. I, I could not agree more. I think the future is human. I think we all need help and support in knowing how to get there, and we have to get there together. Uh, so there's a, a factor of togetherness that we have to be, and that requires trust. Uh, but I think we can do it. I think we can make significant change and improvement in our lifetimes to the way people live and experience work and thrive in their lives. I, I believe all, all the same things. We can't wait to share your book with our community, Cheryl. And thank you again so much for being our guest on The Now of Work.